It was pretty terrifying because uh, Gina screamed. I mean, the dogs got upset. Mike May talks of a harrowing automobile accident and how technology may help out in the future. And Sylvia talks about her first guide being a safe cracker. The safe was in a small storeroom in the back of the stand, and Fawn had a nice foam bed next to it. And we'll hear from Dixie Sanderson on the upcoming GDUI election. Our elections will be the last week of May. They will be done electronically or telephonically. Mike May will also talk to us about a new indoor travel app. We'll also hear about the history of the guide dog harness, plus much, much more here on the May 2016 GDUI Juno Report. Sylvia was the president of the Guide Dog Users of California for several years, and she was a blind vendor. When she was in training in 1989, she had a dog that was a safe cracker. There has always been speculation among animal professionals and us animal lovers as to whether or not our pets truly possess a sense of humor. The vignette I wish to share with all of you should produce a resounding yes as well as a good chuckle. It all began one cool February morning in 1989 as I and my first guide dog, a little fireplug of a female yellow Labrador named Fawn, were getting ready to leave the house for work. I was working for one of the local blind vendors in downtown Sacramento and normally arrived at the location around 6.15 to open up. Fawn was over 11 years old at the time and was scheduled to retire as a guide, although Still quite spunky and willing to work, she was beginning to show telltale signs of aging, such as some arthritis and occasional confusion on familiar roots. It's never easy to retire a beloved guide, and the first is often the hardest to let go. I was all too aware that we had less than two weeks together, as my oldest sister was scheduled to pick Fawn up and take her to her new home in Eureka, a place with which she was very familiar and would be well-loved and cared for by my mother and sister, so I was feeling rather blue as we walked the seven-block route to the state building where the vending facility was located. The final task in my setup routine was always to open the safe and take out the cash drawer for that day's till. The safe was in a small storeroom in the back of the stand, and Fawn had a nice foam bed next to it. It was a combination safe with a large dial that one turned so many times to the left and right in a sequence. As I reached the point to turn the handle and open the door, Fawn knocked my hand off with her nose. I thought nothing of it and tried again. Once again, as I prepared to turn the handle, she pushed my hand away with her nose. She then panted loudly several times as if to say, Ha 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 ha! What are you doing, silly old girl? I said. I have to get this thing open soon. People are going to show up any minute. This happened several times more with Fawn continuing to pant and beat her tail against the safe. I can only guess that she was able to hear the tumblers turning in the lock and knew exactly when to knock my hand off the dial. Soon I was lying on the floor, gasping and helpless with mirth. Anyone passing by would have certainly thought I was in the middle of some kind of seizure. 
Meanwhile, there is Fawn, grinning, panting, and wagging to beat the band. To this day, I don't know whether she did it simply because she felt full of the Dickens, or whether she intuitively knew Mommy was feeling sad and needed a little cheering up. Suffice to say, for whatever the motive, that bit of mischief created a precious memory of Fawn that I cherish to this day. The folks at Reader's Digest were so right in claiming that laughter is the best medicine, and the dose is even sweeter when given by a dog. The 2016 GDUI elections will commence on Saturday, May 21st, 2016 at 12 o'clock a.m. Eastern Daylight Time and will conclude on Sunday, May 29th, 2016 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Dixie Sanderson will now discuss that election. I'm Dixie Sanderson. I am the nominations chair for the election for 2016 for GDY. Our elections will be the last week of May. They will be done electronically or telephonically through the company we have contracted with called Vote Now. All of our members who were members as of the date of record of March 31st will be getting an email or a postcard with a secret member number that's assigned just to them. We don't we at GDUI don't know the number. Only Vote Now knows the number. And that that number allows you to vote. You can either vote telephonically by calling in at the 800 number and um, and following the voice prompts. Uh, they'll ask you a question. You have to wait for the beep and then give your response. And then at the end, it will play back and make sure that you're happy with your uh, your vote choices. You can change the vote choice you can choose to vote for someone. You can abstain from voting from someone. And uh, those options will all be through the, the prompts. You can choose to do it by voice or you can do it by touch tone. If you do it by voice, you have to make sure that you're um, in a very quiet area because it will pick up uh, ambient sounds in the room and, and um, confuse the voting system. So if you're in a very quiet place, you can vote over the phone by voice. Otherwise, um, you can do it by touch tone by the buttons. The other option is if you get an email, you, there's a link. You can click on the link and it brings you right to the voting system and you can vote on the internet. And that will be also available, which would be good for um, deafblind options because you can do it through the internet that way. Uh, is this the first time uh, GDUI has done this, or have, have you uh, used this service before? Uh, this is our second year. It was a very good success last year. We got a lot of positive feedback from the company. The company worked with us very well, and um, so we have uh, chosen to use the same company and the same service. We were re really pleased with, with um, the turnout last year, and we're hoping that this year, because this is so accessible, we will have similar turnout of our membership for voting. And finally, Dixie, who are the candidates that are on that are the nominated slate? Okay, we are running uh, for president. We have unopposed our incumbent Penny Reader. 
For first vice president, it was Deanna Noriega. We have for second vice president is our incumbent Maria Hansen. For treasurer is our incumbent Lynn Merrill. For secretary is our incumbent Sarah Calhoun. And then we have three board member positions available, two full-term and one an interim. The, the two full-terms are for three years, and the one interim is the remainder of a term, which is one year. And the two highest, uh, the two people who get the highest votes for will get the first two positions, and the third highest vote will go to the third. And there are four candidates for that. We have Min Ha, we have Brianna Murray, we have Charlie Crawford, and we have Caitlin Mongillo running for those four, but three positions. Mike May has been a longtime guide dog user and is president and CEO of the Sendero Group, an app and software company specializing in GPS travel for the blind. Mike recently posted on Facebook a harrowing experience where a automobile almost ran him and his wife and guide dogs down. We, we had a, a situation that happened to us, and I, I mentioned it on Facebook, and there was another person I saw in my Facebook group maybe a month later that had almost identical situation happen, but he was injured a bit more. So in, in our case, Gina and I were crossing uh, a street in downtown Davis, wide open, um, no obstruction in terms of trees or anything, but the sun in the early morning at 7.45 in the morning, it was very low, and it was in the eyes of the driver who came to a stop at a stop sign, then made a left turn, and she just clipped me as she went by in her big 5,600-pound uh, Toyota Highlander. Uh, it was it was pretty terrifying because at the time it happened, uh, Gina screamed. I mean, the dogs got upset. Uh, Tank was ahead of me and, and really not phased at all. I think he was just wondering why I was standing in the middle of the street and why didn't I get out of the street. You know, well, he was he was ahead of me, and it was just as I was striding forward, my... Uh, right heel got run over by the car and I felt the wheel go over it and when I got to the curb and and knelt down and was checking out my heel it was it was kind of it was numb so I really couldn't tell did I break it what happened and uh, somebody said oh there's a tire track on your pants and I thought okay well they, she really did run over me and the you know the this the real issue is that that driver even though she had zero visibility sun in her eyes chose to go through an intersection in a town where there's lots of pedestrians, um, thousands of bicycles, and yet she chose to go through that intersection. It just really made me aware of the fact that, you know, how vulnerable we are. We can't stop going out and walking around on our own, but we assume when we're crossing the street and we use our best mobility skills developed over lots of travel experiences, we use those skills Assuming that the person in the car can see. I mean, obviously they should see. They've got a license. They had to pass an eye test, a driver's test. But there are times where they can't see, either because of an obstruction or because the sun is in their eyes. And that 
has made me um, more cautious, and certainly in the case of where is the sun in the sky when I'm crossing an intersection, I'm definitely more careful about how I go about that. And if there's a choice to cross an intersection in a you know, in a different way, you know, let me go counterclockwise instead of clockwise because the sun will be less of an issue. I'm thinking about that now. Right. It, uh, but how did technology play a role in that, and what did you learn with your technology? You have an iPhone, I, I assume. Well, the technology part of that was when I called 911, it wasn't what you expected. You, you assume they know exactly where you are, uh, and that's just not the case with 911. The, your call is routed based on which tower happens to be connecting with your phone. And I got routed to the California Highway Patrol, and they said, where are you? And I said, I'm at 4th and E Streets. And they said, okay, hang on, we got to transfer you. And they transferred me, thinking 4th and E in Sacramento. I didn't say Davis. Right. I assumed, I assumed they, meant they knew Davis, but they didn't. So they sent me to Sacramento. Then I'm telling the people in Sacramento where I am. They said, oh, you're in Davis. We have to transfer you to Davis. So then, then they sent me to the Davis Police Department. I gave them the information. And by the time I was done, I looked at my call log. It took just over four minutes for that to transpire. Now, if I really had been hurt, that's just four minutes until they're done, plus whatever time it takes for them to get to me. That is a scary thing to think of in terms of your expectations in an emergency on 911. And so what I've subsequently learned is that 50% of the U.S. doesn't have cell phone coverage. Now, this is mostly rural areas. That's one issue. So if you're not in cell coverage, you can't get anything. You can't get any kind of 911. Secondly, 70% of 911 calls come from uh, cell phones. 70% come from cell phones, and yet the system was set up for landlines. So from a landline, your address at home is hard-coded into the system, 911, and they see your address come up on their display. They dispatch somebody to your house, no problem. On a cell phone, it's based on this more convoluted system that I just described with cell towers. So they don't know exactly where you are. And the FCC reports that 10,000 people a year lose their lives because of poor cell phone 911 positioning. 10,000 people in the U.S. a year have an issue. Yeah, so I have discovered, and this is just a partial solution, but an app called Blue Light, and Blue Light is uh, something that works with the 911 system. In certain cities and on a lot of campuses, they route you directly to the proper uh, emergency authority rather than letting it go to the just the cell phone tower location. And then additionally, once you when you set up the app, you can tell them your emergency contact. So if I dial 911 within blue light, then uh, it also sends uh, text to my wife and you know other emergency contacts that immediately shows them Mike is calling 911 and it tells that person where I am. That's very nice. Are you thinking of integrating that with with uh, Seeing Eye or one of the apps? Or um, it's possible. It works fine on its own. It, we could put a button for it in just to to help promote the app because it's it's still a fledgling app. Or you know it'd be really good because in an emergency you don't have 
you know, that's what I, I've always thought in an emergency. Am I going to be able to scroll around or yeah. go from, and, and it seems like a gesture or some kind of physical, just, you know, up and down or some kind of a gesture, radical Make gesture. Make it quicker. Yeah, no, it is, it is tricky. The other thing it does, it also allows you to share your route with somebody. So it was really designed for um, young women on campuses uh, with the idea that, you know, they're, they're extra vulnerable and might be going from the library to their dorms late at night. So there's a tracking component. When you set off on a journey, you can say, I want to share my route with somebody. And that then sends a link to a person. And when they click on it, they can see your exact route, where you're going, what address you're at, and when you reach your destination. So that's something we've implemented and use with, with our kids that they just something they need to do at least once a month so they stay in practice. And if they're out in the evening or any, any kind of vulnerable situation, we want them to use blue light to share their trip with us. That's really awesome. Have you played around with uh, Guardian Circle? No. That's an interesting app. That's more of a social media network of friends that are in a position uh to uh, help either by calling 911 and I think they have some of the gestures programmed in to where if you fall it can register motion the app uh, programmers are programming in accessibility to it it wasn't accessible when it first came out but now it's a lot more accessible so you might check that one out too that has some interesting possibilities thanks Dan thanks for the interview yeah yeah uh oh it's tips from Dan in the doghouse today. We got some great travel tips, though, from Ginger Kutch, the GDUI advocate, on your rights as an airline passenger with a guide dog. You can alert federal officials if you have any issues with an airline. You can call the DOT, Department of Transportation Disability Hotline, and that's at 800 778 4838. That's 800 778 4838. We'll repeat that number at the end of the show. That number is only available from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, and is closed on holiday. Passengers who experience discrimination are entitled to immediate on-site assistance, either in person or via phone, from the Complaint Resolution Officer CRO. If the CRO agrees with the passenger, the CRO must give the passenger a written statement summarizing the facts and what steps, if any, will be taken to resolve that issue? Yeah. Again, thanks to Ginger Kutch yeah. for that interesting tidbit. Yeah. And if you have any tips or suggestions for the GDUI Juno Report, you can call our Juno hotline at 916-250-2629. That's 916-250-2629 and leave a recorded message. Nolan Crabb takes us for a nostalgic look at the history of the guide dog harness. Harnessing the power of your guide dog, then and now, a history of harnesses. So, you're about to make that quick run with your dog. Without thinking about it, you grab the leash, snap it in place, then the harness, and off you go. But... Did you ever think much about how that harness evolved into what you use today? If you were back in Charles Dickens' London, what would you use to communicate with and control your dog? After all, Dickens briefly references blind men and their dogs in his classic A Christmas Carol. 
Those attending the GDUI convention this summer in Dallas participated in a session conducted by the Seeing Eyes Lucas Frank, who talked about the history of guide dog harnesses going back as far as the 13th century A.D. One of Frank's earliest images from the 13th century depicts a handler with a cane or staff in one hand being held to protect his face and upper body. The other hand holds a leash with a German shepherd at the end of it, pulling the blind person. Another image depicts a handler with a leash around his waist. Yet another image depicts a 13th century Chinese man being pulled by a dog on a leash. According to Frank, harness evolution took a step forward in Austria in 1819. That harness included a broom handle-like pole that connected to the dog's collar. The rigid pole meant the blind user could more easily determine when the dog stopped or when it went up or down steps. The problem with ropes and leashes and stuff is it's hard to tell which way the dog's going. It's hard to tell when the dog stops, and it's hard to tell whether the dog is going up or down steps, Frank explained. But it's a heck of a lot better than nothing. Frank says the real evolution in harness creation began after World War I. Thousands of veterans were blinded by the use of mustard gas in numerous countries. Frank explained that World War I actually created significant demand for guide dogs, and the Germans, he said, had achieved significant steps forward in training dogs. What they used dogs for was, among other things, tracking. So they developed a tracking harness with a center attachment point so they could hold the leash and let the dog run and track very similar to what is still used today. Post-war harnesses were triangular in shape and resembled the tracking harnesses. They were very short, he explained, about 12 inches long. Not very efficient, but it was a start. He says not only were harnesses different, but the tasks required of the dogs were different as well. Essentially, what they did in the early days was they would warn of threat, and then you would use your cane to figure out what that threat was, he explains. If the handler were approaching steps, for example, the dog would sit at the top or bottom of the steps, and the handler would use the cane to better understand why the dog sat. Early harnesses used well into the 1930s were soft and flexible, often allowing the handler to get ahead of the dog. As he passed around examples of harnesses used over the decades, he pointed out the criteria that comprises a modern harness. The modern harness, of course, as you all know, he says, is characterized by several things. First, two contact points, one on either side of the dog. There is also a rigid handle of various lengths and offsets, and typically a horizontal grip. But harnesses look different in different parts of the world. The British harness, a derivation of which is used at Guide Dogs of Texas, is very different from the majority of designs in use in the U.S. Frank says modern harness designers strive for harnesses that are comfortable for the dog to use over long distances. Designers must also create a harness that is comfortable for the handler, one that provides reliable information. Even the way the harness handle is held can determine how reliable the information coming through the harness is. Newer harnesses are becoming more ergonomic and include more intricate designs that impact the distance and angle between the dog and handler. A Swedish-designed harness allows the handle to be lengthened or shortened. An example of a German harness he passed around included a rather lengthy handle. A Japanese design makes the harness handle look like a marshmallow roasting fork, one end on each side of the dog, moving back to a single point held by the handler. And finally, we look at new apps that allow blind people to know what's going on around them inside a building. Mike May again. 
frontier in navigation is, of course, indoor navigation. And it's this is not new in some ways. I mean, we've been testing and working on indoor navigation for 20 years. The problem is it's really not been commercialized. More recently, with the advent of beacons, there is the possibility that the indoor navigation will become more ubiquitous, mainly because if it's useful for sighted people, then there's a big enough market to motivate companies to get into this business. And the way that they work is that you have a little thing the size of, let's say, a quarter or a couple of quarters together that's stuck on above a doorway or different places, it's just an electronic beacon in a building. And what that does is when you're nearby with your Bluetooth device, like an iPhone, it picks up that beacon, it looks up that beacon in a database, and it says, aha, that is the women's restroom, or that's Office 223, or whatever it is. So there's two things that have to happen. One is those beacons have to be installed in each building, and that's not trivial. And then you need to have a database to match up with the ID of each one of those beacons so that the information is meaningful. So there are a couple of test locations. Uh, the San Francisco airport is one, and it was pretty wonderful to go into that airport using the indoors uh, application and hear all of this information, American Airlines counter, escalator, trash can, restroom. So what we've done with the CNI app is we've integrated uh, another application called Loud Steps, which is one of the many that's out there addressing this indoor beacon situation, so that wherever Loud Steps beacons are installed, you could then seamlessly go from the CNI GPS outside to the beacons inside. Uh, I first saw this demonstrated at the Chicago Lighthouse for the Blind, and it was very impressive from the standpoint of having location information and actually some navigational information indoors that was pretty accurate. Uh, it's a number of the conferences at ACB last year, a number of others, there's uh, an app called Lovis Guide, which is based on the indoors, I-N-D-O-O period R-S. That's the company from Vienna, Austria, that's doing the same sort of thing. And the the issue really is that you've got, each one of these proprietary apps with their beacons, putting them in different places. So the next real hurdle is how do we create enough content, enough different buildings without having to switch uh, and have you know, 25 apps on our phones and know which one goes with which building. That's really the next hurdle in the evolution of this technology. But at least we've gotten started with some pilot locations, some of those conferences, Chicago Lighthouse, uh, NFB headquarters, and now in the next week, we're installing the beacons at the new San Francisco Lighthouse office and their, their new building. Um, so that's going to be happening next week with Loudstep. This has been another issue of the GDUI Juno Report. Our elections for GDUI will be held from May 21st through May 29th. The Department of Transportation Disability Hotline is 800 800- 778-4838. If you want to reach the Sendero Group to find out more about indoor travel, you can call Sendero at their toll-free number 
916-600-6810. To reach the Juno hotline and leave tips or suggestions, you can call 916-250-2629. Or if you'd like to reach toll-free Guide Dog Users Incorporated, you can call their toll-free number at 866-799-8436 or go to www.guidedogusersinc.org. Until next time, safe travels. Oh yeah, and by the way, if you want to subscribe or download the GDUI Juno Report, you can go to http colon slash slash acbradio.org slash gdr dot xml. This has been Dan Kaiser, your executive producer. Until next month.